It's good. You know what was uh, interesting is that it seemed like every time Jesus took off for one place or another, he was interrupted. And it never seemed to bother him. You know, our study this morning takes place in Luke chapter 19, but if you look at what precedes it, uh, he's on his way to Jericho, and, and a blind beggar starts crying out to him, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And people tell him to hush, because nobody likes a loud person in a quiet room. You can just imagine it in, in, in church. Those that led him away rebuked him and told him to be quiet, but he shouted all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and ordered the man to be brought to him. And when he came near, Jesus asked him a simple question. What do you want me to do for you? Yeah, that seems kind of a foolish question on the surface. I mean, the guy's blind, right? So you would expect, say, I want to see, but is that our greatest need? If Jesus were to show up here this morning and say, what do you want me to do for you? What would you say? I would encourage you to spend just a moment in prayer before you answer. Because it has nothing to do with your immediate circumstance. Your greatest need is, is far more eternal in nature than that. What do you want me to do for you? Every time you come to church... Jesus is asking you and I that question. He's come to meet you here. And in this place, and in our praise and worship, in the teaching of His Word, He is here asking that same question. What do you want me to do for you? You have to think about that because if you answer tritely, you may be surprised at the response. Lord, help me to win the lottery. That's not your greatest need to be sure. Lord, heal me. That may be your most immediate need, but not your greatest. Lord, be with me. But our sin stands in the way sometimes. What do you want me to do for you? This wasn't an interruption in Jesus' journey to Jericho. This was a divine appointment to teach us that he is still in this place and still asking his people, what do you want me to do for you? It harkens all the way back to the time of Solomon. You remember he built this glorious temple to the Lord and dedicated it to him, and it was rich and glorious, and there was lots of sacrifices and music and praise and worship. And then after it was all said and done and shut down, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream and said, what do you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do for you? Here's where the conversation should begin. Lord God Almighty, forgive me my sins. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But the child of God does not continue to sin is what 1 John tells us. The Son of God, because we've got the Holy Spirit within us, we cannot continuously continue to sin. If sin has you in bondage this morning, the answer is simple, repent. Here's your greatest need. Lord, forgive me my sin. I will not commit it again. I will not go there. You are the God who delivered. What do you want me for, to do for you? And I think somewhat, no pun intended, short-sightedly, man says, Lord, I want to see. 
So Jesus said to him, receive your sight, your faith has healed you. He had faith that Jesus was the Son of God. He had faith that Jesus could heal him. He had faith that he was the Messiah. Immediately he received his sight, followed Jesus, praising God. And when all the people saw it, they also praised God. Now Jesus is approaching the last week of his life on earth. He knows his ministry is drawing to a close. He knows he is making his way to the cross. He, you and I may be tempted to see these as an endless series of, of sidetracks and rabbit trails. Upon coming into Jericho, which was the nearest city that had these palm fronds. How you say that in Greek, which is the New Testament language that is used, is phoenix, and it harkens back to the ancient phoenix bird of Egyptian mythology that every 500 years, the phoenix bird would be burned alive and out of its ashes would arise a new phoenix. Thus, the, the uh, phoenix bird became an early symbol of Christian resurrection. Interesting. And John is the only one of the four gospel accounts that remind us that these branches, these these palm branches, which are only found in Jericho, were what were stripped off because of their prophetic significance. Jesus is coming again, and He will resurrect us, not only from our sins, but those that have died in Christ. They will be resurrected. But it's all found in John's gospel in that one word that no other gospel mentions, phoenix, the palm branches. It speaks of the phoenix bird. It speaks of resurrection. That's what Jesus came to do. So what you see is not a series of interruptions in his primary journey. This was his journey. He came to seek and to save the lost. That includes you. You and I. It wasn't just blind men that he healed. It wasn't just Zacchaeus, the tax collector, that needed salvation. It's you and I. Our, we have a sign in our hallway that says, Blessed are the flexible. The corollary to that is, for they shall not be broken. I know it's not found in the Sermon on the Mount, but I always thought it was kind of read in between the lines somewhere. Blessed are the flexible. So the interruptions in your life and mine are not interruptions so much as divine appointments. Don't become impatient when they happen. When somebody grabs me and says, we've got to go pray for a guy right now, then we go pray. Is it an interruption to the service? It is my service to the Lord. It is our, our praise and worship. I don't want anybody to interrupt that, but if there is an interruption, it may be God sent, and I need to be open to whatever he has to say to me. Jesus on his way. He's making his way to what he knows will be a rendezvous with the cross an instrument of horrible torture invented by the Romans, actually invented by the Persians, perfected by the Romans. And upon entering Jericho, he's passing through. Looks like another interruption. There's this short little guy in a tree who happens to be the chief tax collector in the area. And it must just look ridiculous, this man of wealth and pomp and circumstance climbs up this tree to get a little better look at Jesus. But when you're only this tall, you've got to do what you've got to do. He wanted to see Jesus. Boy, I, I can identify with him. I want to see Jesus. 
I want to see Jesus. I've prayed all my life for dreams and visions that he'd show up and, and manifest himself to me. Uh, and, and he does in ways and times and places that, that sometimes surprise us. Other times of joy or another person will share their dreams, their visions with you. And that vicarious experience becomes yours. Zacchaeus, the tax collector, his life is changed. And I can tell you that the mission of Jesus is life change. It's life change. Your old nature is not going to be reformed. You were given a new nature, and someday your old nature will be dead. It won't tempt you or plague you anymore with sickness, disease, death. Someday all of these things will be so far behind us. The people, the crowds that had seen the miracles that Jesus had done, the healing of this blind man now are following him like a parade of Macy's down Wall Street or Broadway. It's, it's an amazing thing that culminates in Jesus revealing himself. To the crowds at the triumphal entry, as we find in Luke 19, starting in verse 28, all the time Jesus was teaching all along from his divine appointments for, with the blind man and with Zacchaeus. Jesus is on his way, but he's always got time for people. He's always got time for you and me. He never seems to be interrupted. It never seems to bother him. He just takes it all in stride because he sees what happens to him as the will of the Father. Do you see what happens to you as the will of the Father or an interruption? Something that irritates you. Something you can't be bothered with at the moment. What we celebrate today is really an anniversary. The 1,992nd anniversary since Jesus came into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey in fulfillment of Old Testament messianic prophecies. But markedly, it's the first time that Jesus has accepted widespread praise and worship as the divine Messiah that he is. For the first time, he accepts their praise and worship. Do only God. He receives it as if he is God. Because he is God. It's a very special anniversary uh, indeed. But more than just an anniversary, it, it's a day that was marked with stupendous uh, prophetic significance. The more sure word of prophecy as Peter calls it in 1 Peter 1.23, it was the beginning of the fulfillment, really, of the promise that God gave all the way back in Genesis 2. Understand the Bible from front to back is, a, is a, the story of how God redeems a sinful fallen people. That's the, that's the Bible story in a nutshell, how he saved me from my sins. How we got in this hot mess to begin with is, is found all the way back there in Genesis chapter 2 when Adam and Eve blew it. But there was a prophecy given that sinful couple that day when God confronted them along with the tempter and he prophesied that someday the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent, Satan. And the rest of the Bible is the story of how that came to be played out in God's kingdom of things. All of mankind's alienation from a holy God who created us but our sins wrecked that relationship 
Those days would be over. The price of sin was about to be paid by the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, as John the Baptist declared. What's interesting is you study the first four books of the New Testament, the Gospels, Gospels simply meaning a word for good news. They all have four interesting takes. It's, it's like four individuals that witness a car accident out on Platt Avenue. <clears throat> The four witnesses may see something very, very different, though they're all looking at the same event. Some may say, oh, dude, that was a 68 Cougar with a big block engine, and I can't believe he just rear-ended somebody. You know, and somebody would say, oh, the paint job, I bet that was a $10,000 paint job. Now it's worthless. Other people would be concerned about their health. Other people would say, I wonder what kind of tires they have on, and are they in good condition? The police officer shows up, and he's only concerned about who to write the ticket to. So everybody's got a different vantage point. They're all looking at the same event, but these gospel writers are looking at Jesus coming into Jerusalem, and they have different things that capture their attention. And in totality, they present a full picture of the account that was given to us. For instance, in Matthew's account, he was an accountant, by trade. He was a tax collector familiar with numbers and, and books, and he scarcely misses the most minute detail of that all-important day. It's recorded for us in Matthew 21. Mark includes largely the same material as Peter had recalled it. John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, writing years after all of the others, included some very unique details in his exclusive to his letter, but Luke fascinates me because of my medical background and the fact that he was a practicing physician. Now, in the Roman Empire, a wealthy patrician family would often take their smartest slave and send him away to medical school, and when he came back, he would be, no pun intended, the family physician. That's where they came from. But they were originally not the high-paid professionals that they are today. Back then, they were slaves. They got paid nothing, but they ministered to the family out of their medical knowledge, and his medical knowledge is encyclopedic. Luke is, is an amazing individual, and he is an excellent historian as well, medical doctor by trade, but so exacting in his analysis and recollection of events, and that's where I would like to start today. Turn your Bible to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 19, starting in verse 28. Now, Jesus had kept his distance from Jerusalem uh, previous to this in the last three years, three and a half years of his ministry because of the hostility of the Jewish religious crowd. They hated him. They hated his guts. They hated his popularity with the crowds. They hated the fact that he could do miracles, and they couldn't. They were legalistic, and Jesus deemed, didn't seem to have any regard for their, quote, traditions at all. He never broke the law. But he had no use for man-made traditions. They hated him for it. But Jesus has a destiny to fulfill. He is now coming into Jerusalem for the last time in his life. Begins the final week of his earthly ministry. It is Sunday of Passover week. The following Friday, he will be crucified. The following Sunday, he will be resurrected from the dead. We call that Easter, but it's better and more historically accurate to call it the Resurrection of Jesus Day. Wish they'd put that on the calendars. It constitutes really his last public appearance here uh, before his crucifixion. 
this last week. The crowds that have, would have been gathered there for this celebration of the Jewish Passover because it was a required pilgrimage festival would have numbered in the millions, the millions of people. Jesus is coming in fulfillment of Scripture to take away the sins of the world. Look at verse 28. After Jesus had said this, speaking of the previous parable of the ten minas, as he was en route to his location, after Jesus said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem, and as he approached Bethphage and Bethany, he's approaching from the east at the hill called the Mount of Olives. He sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, a young donkey, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Tell them the Lord needs it. There is much of this that really uh, interests me. <laughs> First of all, Jesus is approaching, but stops on this lowbrow hill that's only a mile long, this ridge of land called the Mount of Olives. And there's, it's filled, called the Mount of Olives because it's all olive orchards on all sides of it. But it overlooks the city of Jerusalem. It overlooks the city of Jerusalem. Uh, other gospels tell us that Jesus, when he overlooked the city of Jerusalem, began to weep. And he said, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, city that slays the prophets. How I would have gathered you to myself as a hen gathers her chicks, but you would not. It broke the heart of Jesus, the sins of the people, and they're rejecting. It, it must break the heart of God today that so many still reject the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and trample it underfoot or consider Christianity one religion among many, and it doesn't really matter which one you believe. It, everything matters what you believe and in whom you believe. It's not faith that saves you. It's the object of your faith that saves you. It is Jesus Christ. Buddha didn't die for you. Muhammad did not die on a cross for your sins. Confucius, Abraham, none of these guys claim to be the Messiah, and yet they have deceived the world today into following these cultic teachings of people that couldn't even save themselves, let alone save others. They weren't able to keep the law perfectly. Jesus did. None of them claimed to be the Son of God. Jesus did. To believe in any other religious figure is to condemn yourself to an eternity apart from the one true living God. Jesus is the way, the way, the truth, the life, and nobody comes to the Father except through Him. That's the good news. There's not many ways to God. There's one way. You want to take the right way if you want to get to the right destination, right? That just makes sense. People say, I want to go to Pueblo, Pastor Jim Hunter, I do that, hop on I-25, head south, but I don't want to go that way. Then you really don't want to go to Pueblo. Maybe you'll go to Colby, Kansas, but you're not going to wind up in Pueblo. Everybody wants to go to heaven. Nobody wants to pay the price. You and I today are called to pick up our cross, deny ourselves, and follow Him. You can't serve two masters, Jesus said. You can serve your sinful fallen flesh and wind up in hell, or you can serve the risen Lord, but it really is a choice. 
He's presenting himself to the people at Jerusalem on this day, 1992 years ago, to give them that choice and make them decide. Decide today who you're going to believe in, who you're going to give your life to. What are you living for? What turns your worm gear? He sent two of his disciples as he approached this brow of the hill called the Mount of Olives, verse 30, and he says something very unusual to his guys. I want you to go donkey napping. I want you to go swipe a donkey. And if they catch you red-handed, I want you to say this. Write this down. The Lord has need of it. And they won't arrest you. I think that takes more faith than it does to walk on water. To do what Jesus said, I mean, back in the 1800s, we used to lynch people for, for horse napping in the wild, wild west. It's tantamount to somebody saying, Pastor Jim, I want you to go down to the citadel and the first 2020 suburban you see, steal. And if somebody stops you and says, why are you stealing my 2020 suburban, you are to say, <clears throat> and I quote, the Lord has need of it. Oh, that's fine. That's fine. Swipe away. What is amazing to me is these guys actually did it. They said, sure. You want us to go swipe a horse? Swipe a donkey? Yeah, we'll swipe a donkey. And of course they get caught. <laughs> Why? Because God wants as many witnesses out there as possible. The Lord. The Lord has need of I want you to highlight that in verse 31, if you would. The Lord needs it. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Tell him. The Lord needs it. Also notice that this is a colt, it says in verse 30, that had never been ridden. I used to break horses for a living. And you typically don't want to send somebody out on an animal that has never been ridden before. Now, I would probably do that to my grandkids all day long and laugh all the next day when they, when they got bucked off, but I'd catch them. But that would be fun. You don't do that. You don't ride an animal that's never been broken. You've got to go through that process. So this is a miracle. Jesus is going to hop on the back of an animal that's never been ridden before. Not surprising. The Creator is the one sitting on His back. So, <laughs> I, mean, I mean, if there was ever an original donkey whisperer, it was Jesus. And I could just see Him leaning on me and go, peace, be still. And the little donkey go, oh, yeah, I'm cool with that. Going on. Colt, which had never been ridden. Now, why is that important? Because an Old Testament prophecy given 500 years earlier in the book of Zechariah, chapter 9, verse 9, said that when Israel's Messiah, the King, the Son of God, would present himself to the nation of Israel, he would do so not on the back of a white charger like the Roman generals did, not come in. Uh, you know, with a lot of pomp and circumstance, he was going to come in humbly and meekly on the back of a colt, the foal of a donkey. So Jesus is fulfilling prophecy here. That's why Peter says we have, you and I, the more sure word of prophecy, prophecy fulfilled, prophecy made hundreds, sometimes thousands of years ago that Jesus fulfilled completely. And that is a glorious thing. And you ask, well, how many other prophecies are there that Jesus fulfilled? In just 
a chapter and a half out of Isaiah 52 to the end of 53, there are 48 specific prophecies given about the life, death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is just one little brief portion of Scripture. It's just one chapter, but there are 48 specific, very specific prophecies there of Jesus that were fulfilled in him. Now, statistically, you say, well, anybody could have been the Messiah that presented themselves on this day, really, right? What's the chances of any one individual fulfilling just eight of those biblical prophecies found in Isaiah? One times 10 to the 150, excuse me, one times 10 to the 27th power. And you say, is that a lot? If we were to cover the state of Texas two feet deep in silver dollars, that's the chances. Just marking one of them, have a blind man kick around uh, for as long as he wants to in that pile of silver dollars in Texas and then pick one, that's the chance of any one man fulfilling eight of Isaiah's prophecies. There's 48 of them in there. Well, what's the chances of one man fulfilling all 48 prophecies in just that little tiny passage in Isaiah? That's one times 10 to the 157th power. And you go, well, I don't know what that is. Is that a large number? There are not that many atoms in the universe. What's the chances somebody else could be Messiah than Jesus? None. Do you know in the field of statistics, they define impossible, and it's anything that exceeds 1 times 10 to the 150th power is deemed statistically impossible. In other words, statistically, it is impossible that anybody else ever born in all of the history of humanity could be the Messiah except Jesus Christ. He fulfilled not just those 48 prophecies found in that small section of Isaiah, There are over 300 Old Testament biblical prophecies fulfilled in the life, death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. 300. Now, that should blow you right out the back door. That should should so convince you there cannot be any possibility of anybody being the Savior of the world but Jesus Christ. That's, what I'm, that's why I'm boring you with these statistics so you can see analytically, statistically, it is not possible for anybody else in all of humanity ever born to be the Savior of the world but Jesus. You say, well, why is that important? Do you know him? Because there is no other way to be saved. I didn't ask if you know about him. That's not the same as knowing him. You may be able to quote the Bible from Genesis to Revelation and everything in between and not be saved. The people that were the greatest Bible scholars of the first centuries are the very ones that crucified Jesus Christ. So it's not what you know about him that saves you. Do you know him? Is that reflected in your lifestyle, your speech, your pattern, your priorities? Is Jesus the center of your life? Is he literally the Lord of all or not? The world keeps most, most of the world keeps Jesus at arm's length. Even those within the church, well, little God's fine, little religion's fine, but I don't want, don't ask me to read my Bible daily. Don't ask me to pray daily. Don't ask me to go to church. Are you kidding me? That's a little zealous. (laughs) Yeah, well, look at what it costs Jesus to save your soul. 
and you can't give them a minute or two to pray, seek his face, worship him, and go to church? Does that sound like that's going to be a legit line to use when you stand before him on judgment day? Jesus is Lord. Is he your Lord? That means of everything, of every encounter, every aspect of your life, Jesus wants to be Lord of all. And here's why, verse 31. The Lord needs it. That that has always intrigued me. Why would the creator of the universe have need of anything? The reason he borrowed a boat, a manger, a donkey, an upper room, and a tomb is because he who was rich became poor for our sakes, Corinthians tells us. He chose to put himself in a place where he would need to partner together with us to get his will and work done on this earth until he comes back. We're on a mission just as much as he is. He wants to see his will played out in and through us. So every day that I surrender afresh to him, Jesus, be my Lord today. Guide everything that goes on, every conversation, every place I go. Jesus, I want to glorify you. So control everything that that comes out of my mouth because that's out of the wellspring of the heart that it speaks. Control every thought that goes across my mind. Be the Lord of all in my life today, Jesus. Every single day you should pray that if you're a child of God because he desires to work in us, on us, so he can work through us. Otherwise, your testimony is corrupted by sin and fleshly indulgence and things that we produce as gods today, like entertainment. God wants to use something of mine, something of ours? Yep. He wants to use you, me. He wants to use our time, our talents, our resources, our relationships. He wants to partner with us to tell the world about himself. Tell the world about Jesus. Tell them what you stand for. Tell them who you believe in. Because it's not just about stealing donkeys or cars. (laughs) It's about Jesus fulfilling prophecy. He came once. Can I tell you something? He's coming again whether you're ready or not. Do not lead a compromised life today and justify it by saying, but everybody in the world does it. Well, it's legal. If they make murder legal, you think it's okay in God's eyes? What a silly argument we make. Well, it's herbal. Smoke oregano. That's herbal too. I mean, where do you, there's some stupid stuff that comes out of people's mouth, isn't there? When it comes to fleshly indulgence and living and acting like the world, when we are in the world, we are not to be of the world. Don't ape the world. Your morals are not the morals of the world. Don't act like the world. Come out from among them and be separate, the Lord said. Speaking of worldly attachments. The Lord has need of us. Verse 32, those who were sent ahead went and found just as he had told them everything. And so they, as they were untying the colt, oh boy, the owners asked them, excuse me, why are you untying the colt? And they replied, 
quote, the Lord needs it. Good guys. I'm proud of them. They said exactly what Jesus told them to say and didn't add a single word to it or take a word away from it. You and I are to do the same thing today. Don't add to the words of the Lord here. Don't take away from it. It is the word of God that we hold in our hands. It is an amazing thing to me that God uses us. Jesus could have went himself and stole the donkey. He's trying to teach the disciples to obey. We say that we're Christians. Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey what I command. What did he command? It starts in Genesis, ends in Revelation. Are you in obedience to the Word of God? Are you living in obedience to the Word of God? Are you sharing the Word of God? The Lord needs it. So in verse 35, they brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, some sort of a saddle arrangement, and put Jesus on it. And as he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. Now, that's just a sign of deference to him. In Elizabethan English, gentlemen used to take off their cloaks and put them across a mud pedal so a lady could cross safely without getting her shoes dirty. It's a sign of chivalry, to be sure. It's a sign of reverence. It's a sign of submission. So the people are spreading their cloaks on the road for this little animal to walk on. Verse 37, when he came near the place where the road goes down, the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully <laughs> to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. There are millions of people in attendance for Passover week. The Messiah is coming. Look, he's on the back of a donkey. He's on the back of a colt of a donkey. Zechariah 9.9, he's the Messiah. His miracles prove it. He's the son of God. He's the son of man. He's come finally. For thousands of years, we've anticipated the coming of Messiah. He's now come. For 2,000 years, the church has been anticipating the coming of our Messiah once again. It is imminent. Nearer now than when we first believed is how Paul puts it. They began joyfully. Praise and worship should always be joyful. It's not singing songs on Sunday morning. It's praise and worship, and it should be done with a smile on your face, joy in your heart to praise God. How? In loud voices. If there's one thing I can't stand, it's demure praise and worship. A long, long time ago when I was a very young man in college, um, I took a class in choir. And the teacher was an absolute despotic dictator. <clears throat> he said, I don't care if you can't carry a tune, but do it with all your heart. Do it loud. So we all said, he'd stop us right in the middle of that and lambast us again. I said, loud, do it with fervor, do it with zeal, or you're in the wrong class. So we started singing louder, and it felt good. I want yours to be the loudest voice in this sanctuary next Sunday in praise and worship. I don't care if you can't carry a, a tune in a bucket with both hands. Do it loud. Do it joyfully because it's praise and worship. God is more interested in the attitude of your heart than the condition of your voice. Please. Demure praise and worship is an oxymoron. 
You know what that means. They began joyfully to praise the Lord in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. And look at what they say starting in verse 38 as they quote a prophetic Old Testament psalm, Psalm 118, that speaks of the coming Messiah. Blessed is the King, the King of Israel, the Davidic King that the Old Testament promises, the Messiah, Son of God, Son of Man. Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord, quoting Psalm 118, verse 26, peace in heaven, glory in the highest. Sounds a lot like the angelic praise and worship at Jesus' birth. This is the backbone of praise and worship. Jesus supplied verse, verse 22 of that psalm to himself in Luke chapter 20. Paul does in Ephesians, and Peter in the book of Acts applies this to the Messiah, Jesus. The psalm says this, if I can quote from verse 22 and verses following from that blessed psalm, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. In other words, the Jewish community rejected Jesus, and he was the very pillar of our salvation. He was the capstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Verse 24, this is the day. What day? The day of his appearance. The very day that he was destined to come into Jerusalem as its Savior. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad. I remember years and years ago, I used to watch uh, Pastor Robert Schuller in the Crystal Cathedral in Garden Grove, California, and he had this enormous cathedral. And he always come out there with this, with this $10 smile on his face, and he'd start every sermon out, this is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. And it just seemed to stir the hearts of the people into praise and worship. And I thought, well, that's glorious, but it's not just any old day that Psalm 118 was referring to. It was the very day that Jesus would present himself as Israel's Messiah in 30 A.D., riding on the back of a colt of a donkey. The psalm continues in verse 25, O Lord, save us. Literally, Hosanna. Save, Lord. It is an urgent cry for him to come and complete the promises he began in us the day he saved us. New bodies, a glorious future, an exalted heavenly choir of a hundred million angels and a glorious thousand-year reign on earth. Oh, we long for that. So we say, save, Lord, Hosanna. Hosanna, come and save us now. Now would be a good time. Oh, Lord, grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord we bless you. The Lord is God. And he has made his light shine upon us <laughs> with bows in hand. Join the festal procession up to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I give you thanks. You are my God, and I will exalt in you. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. So when the people began waving their palm fronds, when the people began stripping branches off of the tree and waving them before the Lord, it was a declaration of he's the son of God. He's the Messiah that we've been looking forward to for thousands of years. He is here. He has come. His miracles have ascertained his credentials. 
He is able to raise the dead. He did many times in his earthly ministry, and he is still doing that today. But what captures my attention in Psalm 118, it's verse 24, this is the day that the Lord has made. In Hebrew as well as in Koine Greek, the inclusion of the definite article, the, this is the day, it always points out a singular and unique identity. It's not just any old day. It, this is a very particular day, a supernatural day, a day of prophecy. What day was the psalmist referring to? Well, it's found in Daniel chapter 9. You don't have to turn there. I'll give you the briefest overview of it. The poor man, Daniel, talk about a, a difficult ministry. He had been in captivity as a slave for 67 years. He's approaching, he's plus or minus 82 years old. The date was 538 B.C. And he tells us that there was a particular segment of time allotted to the nation of Israel. The angel revealed it to him that there would be 62 and 7 weeks of years, a very Hebrew way of saying 483 years. There is a time clock. We don't know when it begins and ends, but there, there is a stopwatch in God's hands that has a 483-year period of time in it to fulfill all of biblical prophecy as Daniel refers to it. Now, he also tells us in that very passage of Daniel chapter 9 that the beginning of this stopwatch is when the decree was given to Nehemiah, in Nehemiah chapter 2 and verse 1, by Artaxerxes Longimanus I, the decree to rebuild not the temple, but the city of Jerusalem. And that fell in the year 445 B.C., about April 1st. 445 B.C. So there's 483 years allotted to us. And I just want you to follow this elementary school math. If I can do this, any sharp fifth grader can do this. Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 8, give us the date of that decree. We know it from history. We know it from archaeology. It puts us in the mid-March to mid-April time frame of the year 445 B.C. Now, the Babylonian and Jewish calendar had 360 days to it. So if you multiply the 69 weeks of years, 483 years, times 360 days, per Hebrew year, you come up with 173,880 days. In other words, Daniel has just been given this prophecy by an angel. You can do the countdown now. From the very day that this decree is given to rebuild the city of Jerusalem, given to, uh, uh, to Nehemiah by Artaxerxes, that's the moment. That's when the stopwatch starts. Count off 173,880 days on that very day. Israel's Messiah will present himself to the nation on the back of a colt of a donkey, fulfilling all biblical prophecies. You can anticipate that day. The Jewish religious leaders of Jesus' day should have been, they should have had a calendar. They should have been marking off the days. He's coming. He's coming. He's coming. Yep, there's an, okay, he's coming. Okay, well, you were a year closer. Okay, we're, we're just 10 years away, five years away. He's coming. He's coming on this day. April of the year 30 A.D. He's coming. 
We need to be prepared for that. He's coming on Passover because he's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Every Jewish scholar should have been there worshiping when Jesus came in those city gates on the back of that donkey. The long-awaited Messiah, but because of their jealousy, their envy, their religious spirit, their snobbery, all they could think of is how do we kill this guy? Everybody's following after him. What's going to happen to us? We're wealthy men with places of honor and prestige and power. We've got to deal with this guy named Jesus. But they should have been able to count down to the very day. That's how important prophecy is biblically. When Peter says we have the more sure word of prophecy, understand how exacting biblical prophecy is to the very day the Messiah was to walk into Jerusalem. That's how sure the promises of God are that you hold in your hand. All of his promises are yes and amen. Israel is 173,880 days, brings us to the second week in April of the year 30 A.D. What is amazing is not that they failed to worship him, but what they said to Jesus next in Luke's account, if we could refer back to chapter 19 again, and look at verse 39. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. They're saying you're the Son of God. They're saying you're the Messiah. Certainly you're not the Messiah. And Jesus said, I tell you, if they keep quiet, the very stones will cry out. That's why he came. That's why he came. And all they could think of is... Oh, this is blasphemy. He's accepting praise and worship. Only do God. Jesus is God. You have to deal with that. Muhammad was not God. Buddha was not God. The Indian uh, deities that are practiced in India uh, today, they, they are not gods. In fact, Paul tells the Corinthian church, those who worship other gods are in fact worshiping demons. There is no other God. It is it is a silly thing to say, oh, they believe in other gods. There are, name me another God who created the universe. There is no other God. It is not possible to say that with any accuracy whatsoever. But the Pharisees in the crowd tell Jesus, tell your disciples to hush. And Jesus said, for, in a nutshell, for this very day I was born. This is fulfilling biblical prophecy. If they were to keep quiet, the very stones would cry out, the stones that I created. Verse 41, as he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, if you, even you, had only known on this day, what would bring you peace? That's what Jesus came to bring us, peace with God, that we might experience not only peace with God because our sins are washed away, but the peace of God as we trust in him through our trials, the things that happen to us that we don't understand. You have peace with God because you've accepted Jesus Christ as the Son of God, died on the cross in payment of your sins, rose from the dead. You believe that, so you're saved. But sometimes the children of God forfeit the peace of God because they don't turn to Him when they go through the trials, the inevitable trials of life. God wants your heart and mind at peace and at rest. Be anxious for nothing. Paul would tell the Philippian believers, this is the day that the prophets had anticipated. 
Jesus said, if you'd only known what brings you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. Verse 43, the days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on top of another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. He's prophesying the Roman destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in 70 A.D. because of the nation's rejection of Jesus as the Christ, the Messiah. That's why this is a pivotal day in all of history. This is a day where the entire nation could have been saved or lost. It was a day of decision. Jesus is prophesying a time is soon coming. In fact, he said in Matthew's account, this generation shall not pass. And exactly 40 years after this, in 70 AD, Titus's Roman legions came into town, destroyed the entire city, burned the temple to the ground, and killed millions. Josephus, who was an eyewitness, records the blood of innocent Jewish people flowed down the streets like rivers of blood. Terrorism in war is not a new thing, and war crimes have been committed since the very beginning of a sinful mankind's tragic, tragic history. They will not leave one stone on top of another, but what Jesus says in verse, the end of verse 44 should be crystal clear. You did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Jesus just claimed to be God. Muhammad never did. Buddha never did. Abraham never did. The three major monotheistic religions of the world. You did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Lucas, being the particular physician he is, is the only one to mention this, this detail, and yet it is so important. Jesus is God. Critics say, well, Jesus never claimed to be God. I tell them, you've never read your Bible. And they haven't. They just like to criticize Jesus claimed to be God many different times. He claimed to be the Messiah many different times. This conversation with the woman at the well, she said, well, when the Messiah comes, he'll explain everything to us. And Jesus said, I who am speaking to you am he. He is the Messiah. At his own trial, the Sanhedrin, these Jewish religious leaders in their high council, would ask him, are you the Christ? Tell us plainly. Jesus said, yeah. Yeah, I'm the Christ. I'm the Messiah. Are you then the Son of of God. Yep. Yep. Son of God. That's me. They put that on his Roman title list on the cross that he was crucified on. King of the Jews. He was their Messiah. Everybody knew it. The Jews knew it. The Romans knew it. We Christians know it by experience. But many in the world today reject him. How it still must break the heart of God. I I see him weeping over Jerusalem because of his impending rejection, but I, how many people do you know that have rejected Jesus Christ? Jesus offers us hope in the world today that the world can't offer us. If you haven't noticed lately, things are not under anybody's control, apparently, except God's. Jesus is the Prince of Peace. I want to be ready to meet him. He, his coming gives us hope in a world that offers none. This whole passage reminds me that, that King Jesus came once. He's coming again. He's coming again. 
And he always tells his disciples what to anticipate. Anticipate when you go donkey napping that somebody's going to ask you what you're doing. And here's what you're supposed to say. Remember Jesus in another context would say, when they bring you before the courts and, and you have to say something, don't worry about what you're going to say in advance. It'll be given you in the day and hour that you need it, and it won't be you speaking, but the Holy Spirit in you. Okay. Okay, I can deal with that. He's just telling his disciples what to anticipate. He tells us in the Sermon on the Mount what to anticipate. He said the world's going to go from bad to worse. You and I should anticipate that. Not let it beat you down. Not let it cause you to be fearful or concerned. Oh, I'm scared to death. Then your faith isn't in God. Your heart, your eyes are not on Him. He is God of the universe. He's got this. He's got this. He is in control of the very smallest details of my life. Our, our hope, our confidence, our, our assurance, it, it has to be in Christ alone, and He will pull out all other crutches that you lean on. Is there something in your life the Lord has need of? Does He have need of your obedience? Do you, does He have need of your recommitments? Does he have need of the things that you possess that you have a stranglehold on and he just wants you to let go of? Does he have need? Not really, but does he want you to give him all of the things that are of concern uh, to your heart that make you anxious? Of course. The Lord has need of these things. Give them to him today. Today would be a good gift exchange day. You give him all your burdens, he gives you all his peace. Fair trade, huh? Fenelon put it this way back in, I believe, the 14th century. Let go and let God. Stop trying to control everything. Don't be a control freak. Trust in him. Don't freak out. Don't become all fretful about anything. Our surrender of everything... Our obedience is what's required. Here's what Jesus said, and these are quotes that come from his lips, not mine. If you love me, you will obey my commands, Jesus said. What are his commands? Genesis to Revelation. God says, don't do it. Don't do it. It's not rocket science. Jesus another time said, why do you call me Lord and do not do what I command? You know this is wrong, but you justify it somehow or another. Why do you call me Lord and do not do the things that I command? That's the price of obedience. Jesus said, he who loves me is the one who obeys me. So make it your life's ambition to live a life that is pleasing to him. The world today is far too preoccupied with self and sin and pleasure. It's too busy it's too preoccupied to make room for God in their hearts. But Peter reminds us, 1 Peter 4, 17, judgment must begin in the house of the Lord. He's coming back for a spotless bride. That's the church. That's you and I. But it is up to us to fan into full flames the embers of the Holy Spirit within. Be holy, even as the Lord your God is holy. That means don't justify anything by the standards of the world, but by the standards of God's Word. Keep yourselves free from sin. 
the sin that does so easily entangle. And help us to run with patience, Lord, the race that he has set before us. It's how the writer of Hebrews puts it. Palm Sunday was really kind of decision Sunday. It was in the first century. It, it is today. It begs the question, well, who is Jesus? I, I was fascinated by Matthew's account where Jesus came in and was doing the healing and the teaching and stuff like this the last week of his life. And they asked, who is this Jesus? Well, let me answer that question for you. Don't, don't blow off Jesus and say, well, he was just a great religious figure in history. He died 2,000 years ago. He's alive today. Sorry to disappoint you. He's alive today. He is the Messiah. Is he your Savior, though? Is he your Lord? He's, do you know that he is the Son of the living God? Then love him and serve him with all of your heart, all of your mind, all of your soul, and all of your strength in these last days. That's what is required, isn't it? All of you, because he has given all of himself for you. And in an anticipation of his soon arrival, once again on planet Earth, what does he want of me? What does he need? He wants all of my heart, mind, soul, and strength. Ah, that I choose to give him. Did you know that there is another triumphal entry that is mentioned in Scripture? It's not found in the gospel accounts. But because he is coming again and he is going to establish his thousand-year reign on planet Earth, you can jot this down, Ezekiel 43, the first five verses, is when the glory of the Lord returns to the temple again, the temple that is soon to be rebuilt in Israel. When this glory returns, he will reign over all of the earth. Ezekiel 43 reminds us. Zechariah 14, when the Lord comes to reign over all of the earth for a thousand years, Zechariah 14, what a powerful chapter. But it is described for us, and I'd like to close with this in Revelation chapter 19. You know it well because I share it with you often, and I just love it. It says in Revelation 19, starting in verse 11, I saw heaven standing open. Here's his second coming. I saw heaven standing open. There was before me a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows, but he himself, he is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He became flesh and dwelt amongst us, John chapter 1 tells us. And the armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Everywhere in the book of Revelation, the only folks that are wearing fine linen, white and clean, are the redeemed saints in heaven. That's you and me. That's you and me. We're going to be coming back to the earth with Jesus in Revelation 19.11. Hope you like riding horses. Mine's going to be 20 hands tall, flowing white hair going all over the place and doing Mach 2, and my hair will be on fire. I can't wait. Somebody asked me the other day, what is Mach? Mach is the speed of sound. So I'd like to be doing twice the speed of sound with my hair on fire for Jesus these last days because that's how I'll be coming back with him in a glorified body. I can't wait. 
He will defeat then the Antichrist's armies, establish his reign as king of kings, lord of lords, for a thousand years, king of kings, lord of lords. The armies of heaven were following him, and out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the rebellious nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury, the wrath of God Almighty, and on his robe and on his thigh he has this name written, king of kings and Lord of lords. That's who Jesus is. Do you know him? Because I have shared a historical context with you this morning, now you know about him, but that doesn't mean you know him. The sign of knowing him is an obedient life. Is that you? Stand together with me this morning, because if that obedient life is not where you're at, you need to repent of that. You need to renounce that as sin and recommit yourself back into the Lord's hands. And your prayer should sound something like this, with your heads bowed and your eyes closed. Lord Jesus, like the blind man on the path to Jericho, have mercy on me. I want to see, Lord, with spiritual eyes. I want to know you. So, Lord Jesus, come into my heart. Forgive me my sins. You are the Son of God. You paid the price my sins deserve when you died on the cross in my place. You rose from the dead on that first Easter Sunday, and you're coming again just as surely as you came the first time, just as surely as all the statistics remind us that it is not possible for any other person born in all of history to have been the Messiah but you. Just as surely as I know you came the first time, I know you're coming again and soon. And I want to be ready for that day, Lord. What a day that will be. What a day of rejoicing. What a day of, of celebration. What a day of praise and worship. A day of total surrender. That's what we want to do right here, right now. Surrender afresh and again. Easter's coming. Resurrection's coming. That you will pay the price all of our sins deserved. Forgive us, Lord, where we have sinned, where we have fallen short, where we have compromised, where we have gotten things wrong or misunderstood. Forgive us, Heavenly Father, in Jesus' precious name. We confess it to you of sin. We make no justification for it at all, but repent of it and say, not my will, but yours be done. Bless us, Father, our homes, our hearts, our workplaces, our children and our grandchildren. As we commit ourselves into your hands once again, we choose the path of humility. We humble ourselves before you. We seek your face, and we seek you with all of our heart and mind and soul and strength because according to the promise of Jeremiah 29, 13, if we seek you with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, we will find you. Remind us it's our responsibility to do the seeking, and we'll find you. We lift up our hands, our hearts, our palm branches, our praise and worship to you. It is closing, song, Heavenly Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. This is your song of declaration. This is your song of surrender, your song of yielding and saying, Lord Jesus, you are mine and I am yours. We celebrate you, Jesus, King of kings, Lord of lords. Come soon.